welcome in. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited. Wherever you're joining us from, uh, this side of your phone or laptop or maybe a TV at home or whatever, I'm excited about today because I believe that someone, maybe you, is going to invite Jesus Christ into your life in a deeper way and that's going to make a change in you. And that's going to change your relationships. I'm excited about that. And I'm excited also because I'm going to share a principle with you that is so foundational and important and revolutionary that some folk who are struggling in their marriages are going to have new life as a result. I'm excited about all those things. Now, Carl and I, um, when we were dating, we got to that place where I, I kind of knew I had to pop the question, right? And everybody worries about how you're going to get engaged. And so, you know, uh, I had to think about the right time and the right place and the right way and all that stuff, right? Well, uh, for me, it was obvious. April Fool's Day, right? I mean, it's like the best day of the year. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? So, so uh, it's a long story. I won't take time to tell it to you now, except this part that um, I don't like to think of it as lying exactly, like maybe more like um, slightly misrepresenting a few facts in order to surprise her really good. And it involves my friend Wayne, who had to tell a few fibs, and me telling a few fibs, which all resulted in her going with him, thinking she's doing a prank on someone else, so he could drop her off at a really nice restaurant, downtown St. Paul, Minnesota. She goes in thinking she's doing one thing, and there I am with flowers in hand. Bam, is that an awesome story? We went up to the restaurant, and one of those revolving kind, we're going around, and the maitre d', uh, the, the waiter guy, he comes with the little, like in the cartoons, you know, the silver tray is perfect, you know, and brought it, had a little thing that he pulled off. And there, as he said it in front of her, was the ring. And um, she actually looked at it and she said, is it real? Is this thing fake? I'm like, yes, of course it's real. Look at the note. And then she read the note and the note was like, will you marry me? And then there were three boxes. Yes, no, and, I, and maybe. And she said, yes. And I said, yes. And they lived happily ever after, right? And that's how every marriage goes. They live happily ever after, right? Except uh, when it doesn't always feel very happy. Um, I have a friend with three daughters. And every time they would watch uh, Disney movies growing up, and they get to that scene in the Cinderella story or wherever, and it said something like, and they lived happily ever after. She would always add in, because they worked really hard on their marriage. And the girls grow up, grew up hearing that. Now they're all married, and they're working hard on their marriages. Carla and I will tell you that that blissful uh, engagement that began on April 1st um, has led to two people who are happily married but not every moment of our marriage is happy and not every moment of our marriage has been uh, an ever after kind of thing because that's not the way it works really for anyone ever. And we're kind of fed a lie. If you want marriage to work, then you're going to have to work. It's just the way it works because it's never fallen in love at first sight and then you just kind of float blissfully along and it's all bliss and glory. It doesn't happen that way to anyone. We're talking about getting real, okay? Let's get real relationships here. And you want marriage to work, you gotta put in the work. Here's why. 
because I, I learned something that I, I didn't fully understand that night, April 1st. And that is that little did I know when I married Carla, it turns out the April Fool's joke was on me because it turns out I ended up marrying someone who's deeply flawed and self-centered and a sinful person. Yeah. <laughs> and so did she. <laughs> and if you decide to get married, so will you. And so will your spouse. Because here's the deal. Marriage is basically this attempt for two deeply flawed, self-centered, sinful people to come together as one in a blissful, problem-free relationship. And I don't go to the casino very often, but I think they call that a long shot, right? They call it a long shot. <laughs> It reminds me of the old joke about the two antennae. You know what an antenna is? Well, two antennae, they met and they got married up on the roof of a building. And they say this ceremony was nothing special, but the reception was amazing. <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, Instagram and all the tabloids, they lie to us about the happily ever after part of marriage. And it's, it's, it's what happens not at the wedding or the reception, but afterwards that gets a little tricky sometimes. And it can be discouraging. And a lot of us today are maybe at a place where our marriages are struggling or it just feels difficult and hard. Um, you know, it can be pretty discouraging. And, that, and, then, and then there's my parents and people like John and Dot Kacharis. My mom and dad are in their 70th year of marriage, like together, like to the same person. And when I think of everything they've been through together and how hard it's been, the, the being dirt poor at the beginning and raising four kids and the struggle there, losing one of their children, preaching and moving around the country and the struggle and, the, and then just the, the difficulty of it. And when I look at not only their heartache and the hardship, but I look at their faithfulness and I look at their togetherness and I talk to them on the phone about every week and I hear them laughing at and with each other and carrying on, it moves me. It moves me practically to tears sometimes because I know their marriage works because They've put in the work and it encourages me and inspires me and I see that they have what very few have and they have what I want. And I think they have what every married person wants. And if you want what everybody else has in their relationships, like most people, like the way most people date and the way they have relationships in their workplaces and families, then just do what everyone else does. But if you want what very few have, then you're gonna have to do what very few do. And you're gonna have to trust God in this relationship thing. You have to trust God who invented this idea of marriage and do it God's way. Now, some of you are saying, why are we talking about marriage? Because so many people that are listening aren't married. That's true. We've talked about singles another week and how important that is and, and how many of us are not married. But you know what? Even some of the singles we've talked about are considering marriage or thinking about it. Or some people that aren't married now have marriage in their future. And we need to know what marriage is according to the Bible. And in a culture where more and more people are choosing just to live together instead of marry because they're skeptical and fearful and depressed about marriage and in which half of all marriages end in divorce, we need to hear what God says about marriage. 
And by the way, Mountain offers a fantastic um, premarital counseling uh, program. It's called Fit to be Tied. You'll learn about what the Bible says, but you'll learn about each other. You'll learn about yourself and you make some friends along the way. Go to the website and check out. It's called Fit to be Tied. We need to talk about this because it, it involves everyone. And you know, one reason is because there's a lot of marriages that are struggling and, and you're suffering and you're enduring through a very difficult time right now. Or you're trying to encourage another marriage of someone you care about and they're really struggling. Or maybe you're recovering from a marriage that has failed. You know, if you're divorced, this isn't about piling on you or beating you up or dredging up the past or giving you a guilt trip or anything like that. I mean, you know, we know that God hates divorce and just about everybody I know who's been divorced hates it too. We get that. But it is maybe going to find an encouragement here to help you to move forward and to say out loud, listen, if you're divorced, you're not a second class person. You don't have to be a second class Christian, but you do got to be able to deal with whatever has happened, whether it was your fault or out of your control and be able to put it in God's hands and know that God loves you and God's ready for your future. If you turn to him, repent of sin and he let him heal your heart. So we, we got to talk about this. And there's also a few probably whose marriages are flourishing right now. And this is a great opportunity for you uh, to be encouraged and then to help others in their marriages. So we're going to talk about this because the kind of relationship that we all want is possible. It's not probable, <laughs> but it is possible. Romans 12, verse two in the message version says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't become so well-adjusted that we just sort of go along with the way that everyone else does things. Especially don't do that in your relationships. Instead, it says, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. I love that. Put your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. That's what this whole series is about, letting God change us so we can have a change in our relationships. Now, there's a lot of myths in relationships and um, a lot of lies out there. If you were not going to get so sucked into the culture that we just think the way everyone thinks, we got to be smart enough to see through some of the myths. Don't have time to talk about all of them. I'll give you a couple. One, here's a myth. Everything will get better with time. In other words, this relationship, it'll get better with time. Guess what? That's a lie, okay? If that's true, why, why did I clean my garage one time and now it looks like a mess? Why is that true? Things don't just automatically get better with time, do they? It's called the second law of thermodynamics. It means things tend to go to pot and rot. It's true, you know, of your toilet bowl and your wastebasket, and it's true of any relationship. They don't get better by themselves over time. You want a marriage to work, you got to put in the work. Another myth is, is that my spouse will complete me. My spouse will complete me. Jerry Maguire made it famous, didn't he? You complete me. Guess what? No, they won't. No, they won't. Ephesians 3 says, may you experience the love of Christ. Though it's too great to understand fully, may you experience. And then, the Bible says, you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What we need to be complete only comes from God. And until we have that fullness in Christ, we'll never feel or be complete, which leads to another myth, straight up lie that Mary and you will make me happy. People who think their goal in life is to be happy are never happy. And if you get married and that's your goal to be happy, then you're going to go into that marriage and you think that that person that you're marrying is supposed to make you happy. And guess what? There's going to be plenty of times when they don't make you happy. And this is why some people 
get on the marriage treadmill and go through one partner after another because you didn't make me happy. The Bible never says get married because it'll make you happy. There's all these myths that the culture believes. We want to get relationship. I want to get, I want to get this. I want to get marriage. I want to figure it out. And if we want to do that, we got to do it God's way. So I want to turn your attention now to an amazing passage of scripture. It's probably one of the, um, the most important places in the Bible that really teaches and talks about marriage in an extended way. And it's found in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is talking to some people and he gets to the end of this after we've talked about the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus and he gets to the end with some practical application and he applies it to marriage and to parenting and to bosses and employees. And um, the sum of it is in verse 1, he says of chapter 5, he says, you got to be an imitator of God. Look for your example to Jesus Christ and then imitate that. At the very end of the chapter, here's what he says is the ultimate goal when he talks about marriage in verse 31 and 32 of Ephesians 5. He, remind, he says, as the scriptures say, he's referring to the Old Testament, and Jesus quoted this as well. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. One plus one equals one. That doesn't make sense, and that's why he says it's a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Isn't that beautiful? It's a profound mystery. This is not easy stuff. It's not like one of those little kid puzzles, you know, the little round ball with the little pieces, and it's like, oh, the star goes in that hole, and, and this one goes over here. It's like, oh, I can figure that out. But this one's trickier than that. It's a portrayal of the amazing, infinite everlasting, perfect love of God. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of that. It's a representation of that. It's like a living demonstration of how much and how perfectly and how good Jesus loves us. And so when marriage works right, you're like, oh, you get a snapshot of how God loves us. The two become one. And that's no kid's puzzle. And listen, the Bible promises that there will be moments in your life that you can do this. It's not easy. And you won't do it perfectly or easily or every moment, but you know what? You and I can do it. Because when we imitate God, his love comes into us. Here's the crux. It comes down in verse 18. Listen to this. It says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Now that, that's all true, but his main point isn't about drinking alcohol. He says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with God. Let God come inside of you and be in charge of your life. When you're drunk and you're under the influence of alcohol, man, you do things and, and, and you, you, you might not ever do because you're what? Under the influence. The Bible teaches, let God be like that for you. Like get under the influence. Be, let God be in charge of your life so that you would do things that you would never do and could never do 
if God was not alive inside of you and his spirit dwelling. This is exciting stuff to me because it means I, Ben, I, I can be better than I can be on my own when I invite God inside of me and his spirit is what helps me in the middle of an argument, in the middle of a time when I want to just rise up and grab a hold of my flesh and do something really stupid. Instead, I can come under the influence and do what I could not and would not do in my marriage to love and to cherish and to have and to hold till death do us part in sickness and health, riches, rich and poor and all that stuff. I can do all of that through Christ who strengthens me when I invite him in. And you can too. Not every moment you won't be perfect, but let the spirit of God come inside of you and let that change who you are. It will change your relationships. It'll change your marriage. Take a look at this picture. Uh, it's called the marriage triangle. It's a simple concept. It pictures the way that God intends marriages to work. Look at that triangle. Each line represents a relationship. You have a relationship with your spouse, obviously, but both the husband and the wife have a relationship with God. And it's showing us that while we have a tendency to want to figure out how to get this relationship better, the first and most important thing we can do is both of you go hard pursuing after God. I know if you're married, you've got to put a lot of attention on your relationship with one another. Put it above all other human relationships, for sure. But even above your marriage, seek first the things of God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the more you do that, then you notice those two lines get closer, to, they get closer together. The more that you get close to Jesus the closer you can get to each other. You, you notice as you move closer to the Lord that you find yourselves changed in ways that draw you closer to each other. And you have inner strength and attitudes that make your marriage better. The best thing you can do for your marriage is draw close to God. Now, this passage in Ephesians 5 goes on to talk about uh, the assumptions about how men and women are different, um, they're, they're not all men are the same and all women are the same, but one thing we do know is that men and women fundamentally have some differences, not just biologically, but otherwise. I love what Larry Crabb says. This is important because he says, often the failure of men and women to meet each other's needs, emotional and other needs, is simply due to ignorance. Ignorance of each other's needs and not due to selfish unwillingness to be considerate. He's saying, we often don't deliberately hurt each other or try to drive each other crazy. We're just wired differently and sometimes we forget to take into account each other's needs. Reminds me of that, that old Mel Gibson movie, right? Remember, what women want. What women want. And he plays this guy, he's kind of a typical clueless, stereotypical guy, doesn't know anything, falls into a bathtub with a hairdryer and suddenly he can hear women's thoughts and knows exactly what they want. <laughs> Which kind of makes you wonder, you know, why has there never been a sequel, you know, another movie called What Men Want? <laughs> and another women are thinking, well, that'd be easy because it'd be a boring movie because there's only one thing a man wants. Um, well, it turns out that's actually true, but it's probably not the thing that most people think. Let me show you right out of the Bible in this classic passage we're working through. It talks about marriage in Ephesians 5 here, but it gives us insight that we're looking for here. 
Look at verse 21. It started at 18, says, you know, you get the Spirit of God in you. And then verse 21 says, therefore, you can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it reminds us that marriage, after you open your mind and heart to Christ, it changes how you're trying to jockey in position and get the other one to do for you what you want. But instead, you've got two servants trying to outdo each other in love. That's the key to every great relationship and to every marriage. If God's leading your life, you've submitted to God. Out of reverence for Christ, now you're going to also be like Jesus, imitator of God, who also was a servant to others. Which is a reminder, you know, I've said it before, but you know why oysters don't make, they should never get married. You know why oysters should never get married? Because they're shellfish. They're shellfish. And see, friends, if we don't learn to beat down the selfishness in us, it's the cancer of every relationship. Every relationship that goes south, it's because of selfishness. So Paul is saying you want to have a great marriage and make it work and do it God's way. Well, then we've got to get to the place where we can get past ourself and begin to take into account the needs of our partner. So let's get super practical. At the end of this passage is the million-dollar verse I want to share with you today that's going to revolutionize. It's going to, it's going to really wake up a lot of people today. Here it is, verse 33 Pay attention. If you're taking notes, this is the one you write down. Here's what he says. He says, so each man must, what's the word? Love his wife as he loves himself. He's already described how Jesus laid down his life for the church and says you got to sacrifice. So he sums it up. He says, husbands, love your wives. And then, and the wife must, what's the word? Respect her husband. So what is it that a husband is commanded to do in the Bible? Toward his wife, love her. And what is it that a woman is commanded to do toward her husband? Respect him. And why why would God say that? Do you think it could be because God made us and knows how we operate, how we're wired, and what we desire more than anything else? I think that's exactly why. God made us because he knows the primary need of a woman is to be loved. And the primary need of a man is respect. Love and respect. Love and respect. Love and respect. Number one need of a woman, love. Number one need of a man, respect. So wives, you're not commanded actually here to love your husband. You're commanded to respect him. Now, Shawnee Feldon is a, is a uh, Harvard statistician that we had in here a few years back at Mountain. And she shared um, the results of a survey that she did with hundreds and hundreds of men, consistently the same results all over. They're asked this question, would you rather spend the rest of your life feeling alone and unloved, or would you rather feel disrespected and inadequate? Do you know that like 75% always, every time she asked that survey, the men would say, I'd rather spend the rest of my life alone and unloved than I would disrespected. And women can't believe the results of the study. They're like, what? Because they themselves would always choose the other side. Love and respect. That's the way the marriage works. It's also why sometimes it doesn't work and turns into a cruel April Fool's joke. What often happens is something called the crazy cycle. Take a look at this diagram here. This comes from Emerson Egrich. When we're not getting close to God, when we're not gaining strength from him and we begin to focus only on our own needs and I I only can think about, man, what's not being met? You're not meeting my needs. I begin to think about myself and when that happens, what do I do? I react, okay? So ironically, when, when I focus on my unmet needs, 
I'm not able to notice your unmet needs anymore because I'm more worried about mine. So when a wife feels unloved, she may not even realize it, but this feeling of unlove, it, you, maybe the husband did something dumb, uh, he's preoccupied, he, he acts in a way that she feels takes her for granted or is uncaring or so focused on something that, you know, just not interested. It's just dumb guy stuff. So a, a, a wife is gonna react to that. And she may not be thinking about how to show respect because she, she's focused on her unmet needs. She's hurting. She's frustrated. She feels neglected. The very thing she wants more than anything is not coming. Love, and, and which means she's gonna react in ways that make her husband feel how? <laughs> disrespected. And when a husband feels disrespected, what's he gonna do? He's not gonna be thinking about her needs. He's gonna be thinking about how disrespected he is. And he's gonna tend to react to that. How's he gonna do that? In ways that feel to her very unloving. He's not gonna give her the love she desires because he's not feeling respected. And so he withholds more love from her and then she reacts and she ends up treating him with less respect and he reacts and treats her. You see, and round and round we go. Where it stops, nobody knows. It's called the crazy cycle. It starts when a woman feels unloved. You know what happens very often? She does the thing that men dislike the most and make them feel most disrespected. She starts nagging him. She's just nitpicking. Yeah, okay, okay, who, uh, who loves me now, boys? <laughs> okay, I'm here for you today. Um, she doesn't think of it as nagging or nitpicking. She thinks of it as a suggestion to awaken him to what's going on. Um, but often he'll feel rather shredded or his heart is reduced. You, you remember Aretha Franklin? What, I don't know what year that was, back in the 60s, that song, Respect, right? I think it's like number eight all time on the billboard charts. It's a great expression and a lot of women need respect and want respect, but you know what? She didn't write that song. A guy wrote that song. His name is Otis Redding. And he was speaking the words that every man feels. He wrote that song after a fight with his girlfriend. And that's when he came up with those words, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what that means to me. That's what I want. Now, it apparently didn't work out because the next song he wrote was sitting on the dock of the bay. <laughs> so apparently it didn't work out for him. But it doesn't change that every guy wants and needs respect. But the more a wife nags or complains, the more he withdraws and pours himself into his work because, they, you know what, I feel respected there. I get things done and people think I know something. And now she feels even more like she, he's disinterested. And so she feels unloved. And this crazy cycle can go on and on and on for years. And you can make a whole marriage of it if you want. I did, I did that because you did that. Well, I did that because you did that. And round and round we go. This is how affairs often start. He finds someone who makes him feel respected. She finds someone that finally gives her some attention. You can't motivate your husband by withholding respect. And you can't motivate your wife by withholding love. So take a look at the next one. This diagram is called the energizing diagram. You know what motivates a woman? Love. You know what motivates a man? Respect. It, it changes everything. And that's the way out of the crazy cycle. When someone 
obeys the scriptures. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. And someone puts on their big boy or big girl pants and says, I'm gonna let the spirit of God come in me and I'm gonna do what I could not and would not do. I'm gonna love this person right here and right now. Husbands, when you show love to your wife and you do what matters to her, you will find you're married to a different woman. Because when she feels love, she's gonna be motivated to show you respect. And when you feel respect, you're gonna be motivated to show her more love, which motivates her to show more respect. And round and round we go, and that's what builds a crazy, amazing relationship. And that leads to a whole better solution. The next one is even better. It's called the rewarded cycle, where now you can just like get past the sort of, well, you did that, I'm gonna do that. But you just say, I'm gonna do this unconditionally, like unconditional love and unconditional respect. Imagine that, unconditional love and unconditional respect. Like regardless of what you just did or how you act, I'm still gonna love you. I'm still gonna respect you. Now, some of you are tripped up on this unconditional respect thing because we always say respect has to be what? Earned, right? Where's that in the Bible exactly? Does love have to be earned too? No, there, there is such a thing as unconditional love. And, and, and when you love someone unconditionally, it means there are no strings. You're not performing for me and I'll reward you with my love. No, it's unconditional, no conditions. And there's two things that you gotta, you gotta be understanding about unconditional love. One, you can't expect love to be a feeling. And number two, it's not based on what you do. Like your kids, you don't say, well, you did good, so now I love you, you did bad, now I don't. No, unconditional means it's not a feeling and it's not based on what you do. Unconditional respect is the same thing. It's not a feeling. And it's not based on what you do or don't do. Ephesians 5, in the earlier chapter, Ephesians 4 reminds us, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God and Christ forgave you. So maybe if you're struggling with unconditional respect, it might be this is where you could get some traction with something that's lodged itself in your heart that's blocking you. Do or your spouse, what God has done for you. And by the way, we just need to say, unconditional respect does not mean you should ever tolerate abuse. Someone's been abusing you sexually, physically, emotionally, any way like that. You need to do something about it. You need to tell someone about it and you may need to get out. Let me just give you a couple quick things about how this works really practically, okay? How does a wife spell respect to her husband? I came up with something called CIA. CIA, you go undercover, CIA, here it is, conquest. Number one, conquest. You're taking notes, you write down conquest. Appreciate his desire. Like in the garden, he's supposed to, he's supposed to go take care of and, con- and conquer that garden and, and appreciate the fact that your husband deep down wants to achieve and to have status and, and you, can, you can appreciate that. And every man I know feels somewhere deep down like he doesn't have what it takes and he's feeling insecure even though we look so tough and macho and all bravado and all of that. You, you need to respect his ability to achieve and convey that to him him and be beside him and behind him his desire to to conquer i stands for insight appreciate his insights his wisdom his intelligence of course he's not as smart as you but you know what let him know there's something he does once in a while that's actually pretty smart pretty amazing his ability to analyze or give counsel and A stands for aspirations. Like don't always assume the worst about your, your man. Let, know that he aspires to do good by you. 
I know many of you probably think men just lay awake at night dreaming up how we can, you know, pre, in premeditated ways hurt you and, 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 you know, do dumb things and offend you and so forth. But it's not really true. We're just, a lot of men are just naturally clods, <laughs> you know. You, you got to be made out of a rib. We were made out of the earth. So we are, we're clods. We go, it goes way back, right? We're clods by nature. But don't try to attach negative meaning to everything that goes wrong or every little misstep. Don't globalize it and say, oh, no, yeah, now this means this because it's huge now. It's like, no, you just, just try, to, try to believe the best, not the worst about your man. And that's CIA. I would I'd probably add an F, C-I-A-S, sexuality, appreciated desire for sexual intimacy, even if it's not the same as your own. And ladies, that's your homework. Go home and find two or three things that you respect and tell your husband, hey, here's something I respect. After his jaw hits the floor or you'll see his chest go out, Tell him how much respect you have for her and then just walk away. You'll see his demeanor changed and you'll probably see some changes toward you as well. Unconditional respect. And guys, unconditional love. Unconditional love. What does that look like? Well, Christ loved the church, sacrificially laid down his life for her. What does it look like? It spells the word couple. You ready? I'm going to go real fast. C-O-U-P-L-E. Closeness. Move toward her. Cuddle. Couch time. Move toward her. Don't move away. Connect with her. Closeness. Oh, openness like share your thoughts and once in a while say here's how i feel oh i know do it anyway you understanding like listen and don't try to always fix just listen the best words you could ever say to your wife sometimes are and then what happened like you want to know more because you want to understand her and peace peacemaking like don't just let things don't just walk away and leave it up in the air resolve the problem say you're sorry Take her in your arms. L stands for loyalty. Let her know she's the only one for you and then prove it. This is about priorities. This has been a real struggle for me because I love Carla in my head and I don't always show it in my actions. And when she points that out, I get defensive and angry sometimes. When my marriage is not going well, it's because I'm giving Carla leftovers because I'm all in on some project and I, I, I do love you, baby, but I'm over here doing this thing. And then we feel disconnected and she knows she's not getting my best. And we get disconnected. When we are clicking, it's because I'm pulling up reins on things and we're paying attention to each other and giving it the priority that we both really want. And E stands for esteem because it's not only true of men, it's true of every woman I've ever met that somewhere deep down, they desire to be built up and told they're amazing and beautiful and strong and good. And you can help your, your wife flourish or you can help her flounder. And it's in the power of your tongue and what you say about her. Show that you accept her and approve of her, that you're proud of her. I know you can hold her hand. I know one guy says, I hold my wife's hand everywhere we go because if I let her go, she'll shop. But there's more than that reason to hold her hand because you want to build her esteem. That spells couple. You see, behind every woman's disrespectful look or words or actions is usually a wounded person who feels unloved. And behind a man's unloving words or silence is a wounded husband who's probably feeling disrespected. What do we need? We need that new cycle where love motivates respect and that motivates more and we give it unconditionally because Jesus loved us and he fills us with his spirit to help us do what we could not and would not do otherwise except for his influence. Tom Anderson knew his marriage was in trouble. It wasn't like a big affair or something. It was just gone. It was just dead. It was just lifeless. And 
something was wrong. And they went on vacation and they were at this beach house. And late one night, his wife was in bed and he's driving around, kind of feeling melancholy. And on the radio comes a preacher talking about this very passage, love and respect. And that passage, the verse where, the man, where it says, the man and woman will be one. And it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you know what? He says to himself, I, have, I haven't been doing that. I have not been doing that. And he says, I'm going I'm to commit to that on this vacation. I'm going to give it a whirl. And so he just said, I'll see what happens. So on vacation, you know, instead of watching as much TV, they went for a walk instead. He said, you want to go for a walk? And they talked and good things happened. I, I helped out. I, I was more thoughtful. I tried to consider her needs. He said, I just did that on the vacation. And I could feel something was changing inside of me. I felt like someone was giving me power to, to do more for her. And I could see it was having an impact on her. And when vacation was over, he says, I, tried to, I just kept doing it and it wasn't hard. She felt more valued and cherished. I started to feel more respect and our, everything started to fall more into place in our relationship. It was like a whole new marriage and it really started to take off. But then one morning, about four weeks later, he found her sitting on the edge of her bed, just kind of despondent, staring into space. He said, what's wrong, honey? What's wrong? And she said, you know that doctor's appointment that I had before we went on vacation? She says, yeah, you know, I know the one you mean. It was just a physical Routine, nothing? Why? She looked at him. She says, do you know something that I don't know? He's like, what are, what are you talking about? She says, you've been so good to me for these last four weeks. Am I dying? And he said, no, honey. You're not dying, but I'm finally learning how to live. Husbands and wives, start living. Start living with each other. So your spouse has to ask, am I, am I dying or something? Live with Jesus inside of you to show love and respect. 